Hi there, and welcome along to this week's episode of the Think Curiously podcast miniseries, The Weekly Stoic. Now, you may recall last week that I gave a shout out to a few different people in the intro uh, who had began their Stoic journey because of listening to an episode of the podcast. And as I said at the time, it's so motivating to know that this pod is helping others to think deeply about Stoicism as well as promoting curiosity in that respect. I'm also delighted to let you know that over the next few weeks, I'm going to have a guest on at some point who will be sharing their stories of Stoicism and their experiences. And it's worth noting as well that if you're out there, you've started the journey, you're thinking about it, maybe you're a few years down the line, maybe it's something you came across at a younger age and your life has been changed or you have thought deeply about it since then, then if you feel like you want to, please do get in touch. We can share your stories. We can do it anonymously. We can have you on. It would just be great to hear from you. Because as I said previously, it does give us some motivation to continue doing what we're doing and also creating a network and connection of different people who think about Stoicism, but allow us then to share our stories and experiences to allow us to get a deeper meaning in ourselves. So if you followed the podcast, you'll know that each week I introduce a different character who is prominent or central to this Stoic philosophy story. Last week we met with Aristo, who we talked about being a challenger of principles that Zeno and Cleanthes before him had laid down. This week we meet with the third leader of the Stoa, Chrysippus, and otherwise known as Fighter. In his early years, Chrysippus was introduced to running, and unbeknown to him, he would later compete in the Olympic Games, running in what was then known as the Dolichos, which was essentially a three-mile race, a discipline to which there is no modern equivalent. Now, unlike 5,000 metres, for example, runners did not run in a constant looping track. Instead, it consisted of approximately 24 lengths of a stadium, back and forth. Now, at the time, Chrysippus was unconsciously honing his ethical fortitude that would serve him well later in life. This ethical fortitude is evident in his beliefs of a fair race. Chrysippus is quoted as saying, Runners ought to compete and strive to win as hard as they can, but by no means should they trip their competitors or give them a shove. So too in life, it is not wrong to seek after things useful in life, But to do so while depriving someone else is just unjust. At the time of his ascent to leader of Stoicism, questions were being asked of the philosophy. Conflicting schools of thought were being developed and cynical philosophers were challenging its teachings. Thus, it fell to Chrysippus the thankless task of fighting to protect the ascendant but still fledgling school of thought. Chrysippus enjoyed this challenge. Indeed, in the early years of his career, he spent time learning and teaching in schools of opposing thought. Now, it's not that Chrysippus was disloyal to Stoicism. He knew that there was no better way to strengthen your defence than to learn of the opponent's offence. Where Cleanthes was slow and methodical and always charitable in his assessments of rivals, Chrysippus was proud and loved intellectual combat. Where Cleanthes preferred the power of poetry and often used analogy and metaphor, Chrysippus insisted in both his teaching and his prose, on the perception of logical argument and formal proof. He was a man of moral fairness, who viewed life like philosophy as a battle, and a battle that should be fought fairly. Now this week I take inspiration from page 47, dated February the 7th of the Stoic, the Daily Stoic book by Ryan Holiday, upon which this podcast is based, and it's titled Fear is a Self-Fulfilling Prophecy. And it begins with a quote, from Seneca. He says, Many are harmed by fear itself, and many more have come to their fate while dreading fate. Only the paranoid survive. Andy Grove, a former CEO of Intel, famously said, It might be true, 
but we also know that the paranoid destroy themselves quicker and more spectacularly than any enemy. Seneca, with his access and insight to the most powerful elite in Rome, would have seen this dynamic play out quite vividly. Nero, the student whose excesses Seneca tried to curb, killed not only his mother and his wife, but eventually turned on Seneca, his mentor too. The combination of power, fear and mania can be deadly. The leader convinced that he might be betrayed acts first and betrays first. Afraid that he's not well liked, he works so hard to get others to like him that it has the opposite effect. Convinced of mismanagement, he micromanages and becomes a source of the mismanagement. The things we fear or dread, we blindly inflict upon ourselves. The next time you're afraid of some supposedly disastrous outcome, remember that if you don't control your impulses, if you lose your self-control, you may be the very source of the disaster you so fear. It has happened to smarter and more powerful and more successful people. It can happen to us too. So after reading all of those seven days um, and that particular question on February the 7th, the one that stuck with me the most is, what do I fear? When I thought about the question, I then asked myself, what does fear mean to me? It's not something that I've ever thought too much about and the stereotypical thoughts started to flow. The likes of, I fear losing family members. I fear not being physically fit enough to coach. I fear losing my job. But upon reflection and in reality, these are superficial fears because I realized during the process of that thought, fear is actually irrational as it often relates to things that are uncontrollable. We like to think we're in control of certain situations and aspects of our life, but in reality, that couldn't be further from the truth. And when I was thinking about that, it popped into my head. When someone says to you, have a safe flight, I don't know why it came into my head actually, because we can't fly anywhere right now in the middle of a pandemic, but it just seemed to resonate that that's actually a saying or a phrase that people use without really understanding why they're using it. They think that by doing so, they're comforting the person that they are saying it to. Have a safe flight. I mean, why wouldn't you? But in actual fact, I actually think it's a comforting statement. It's used to alter the mindset, potentially of a nervous flyer, to think that they're in control of the outcome of their flight, when in reality, they're not, because not even the pilot is in full control of the outcome of that flight. There are so many external factors and internal factors to an extent that control the outcome and successful landing of a flight. From there then, what I did was I took my journal my journal article and I thought deeply about, well, what is it that I fear? And how do I go about trying to understand what those fears are? And Again, if you've been following the podcast, you'll know that I use the Daily Stoic Journal by Ryan Haldy to catalogue all of my thoughts. And on the 7th of February, the title for the reflection was How Can I Conquer Fear and Worry Before They Conquer Me? Here is what I wrote in my journal. It is quite lengthy, as it always seems to be, um, and hopefully you can follow along. So I start off by saying or asking the question, what do I fear most? I fear losing ambition and succumbing to society's expectations. My thoughts being controlled by a superficial narrative driven by outside influences as a mean of controllership. How do I conquer that fear? By investing my time in projects that I am passionate about. I think fear is irrational in this sense. We only ever fear that which we can't control. So why then do I refer to it as fear? Why not rethink it? Well, because fear can be debilitating. For example, the fear of reputational damage within football circles in the past has prevented me from podcasting, 
writing, discussing and publishing content outside of that realm. Fear that what I've worked hard to build will be removed because of the opinions of others. Again, do they really matter? John Wooden would say that your reputation is who others think you are, but your character is who you really are. What I've come to realise is that reputation is beyond my control. What is important is my character. That's what I've got to build, develop and protect. So why do I still fear reputational loss? Why do I get entwined in projects and situations with the precise goal to build my reputation? Is it social acceptance? Quite possibly. But I speak so often about not caring what others think, so why do I still put the effort in? I think I do it because the words are a facade, a mask. No one can be totally desanitized from the opinions of others. I'm not entirely sure that at any stage during that, the questions that I asked were ever answered. But one thing I have come to realize is that even through some of the questions, I'm closer to finding out clarity now uh, than I ever was before. It's kind of paradoxical in many ways. The muddier the waters become, the closer I seem to be to finding clarity. Now, moving onwards, we will take each day at a time from the past week and read with the likes of Epictetus, Seneca and Marcus Aurelius, starting from February the 5th and continuing all the way through to February the 11th. February the 5th. Steady your impulses. Don't be bounced around, but submit every impulse to the claims of justice and protect your clear conviction in every appearance. Think of the manic people in your life, not the ones suffering from an unfortunate disorder, but the ones whose lives and choices are in disorder. Everything is soaring highs or crushing lows. The day is either amazing or awful. Aren't those people exhausting? Don't you wish they just had a filter through which they could test the good impulses versus the bad ones? There is such a filter. Justice. Reason. Philosophy. If there's a central message of Stoic thought, it is this. Impulses of all kinds are going to come, and your work is to control them. Like bringing a dog to heel. But put more simply... Think before you act. Ask, who is in control here? What principles are guiding me? February 6th, don't seek out strife. I don't agree with those who plunge headlong into the middle of the flood and who, accepting a turbulent life, struggle daily in great spirit with difficult circumstances. The wise person will endure that, but won't choose it, choosing to be at peace rather than at war. It has become a cliche to quote Theodore Roosevelt's Man in the Arena speech, which lionises the ones whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, compared with the critic who sits in the sidelines. Roosevelt gave that speech shortly after he left office, at the height of his popularity. In a few years, he would run against his former protégé in an attempt to retake the White House, losing badly and nearly being assassinated in the process. He would also nearly die exploring a river in the Amazon. He would kill thousands of animals in African safaris and then beg Woodrow Wilson to allow him to enlist in World War I, despite being 59 years age. He would do a lot of things that seemed somewhat baffling in retrospect. Theodore Roosevelt was a truly great man, but he was also driven by a compulsion, a work and an activity addiction that seemed without end. Many of us share this affliction, being driven by something we can't control. We're afraid of being still, so we seek out strife and action as a distraction, We choose to be at war, in some cases, literally, when peace is in fact the more honourable and fitting choice. Yes, the man in the arena is admirable, 
as is the soldier and the politician and the businesswoman and all the other occupations. But, and this is a big but, only if we're in the arena for the right reasons. Because we've already visited February the 7th in the main body of the podcast, we're going to skip forward until February the 8th, titled, Did That Make You Feel Better? You cry, I'm suffering pain. Are you then relieved from feeling it? If you bear it in an unmanly way? The next time someone gets upset near you, crying, yelling, breaking something, being pointed or being cruel, watch how quickly this statement will stop them cold. I hope this is making you feel better. Because of course it isn't. Only in the bubble of extreme emotion can we justify any of that kind of behaviour. And when called to account for it, we usually feel sheepish or embarrassed. It's worth applying that standard to yourself. The next time you find yourself in the middle of a freakout or moaning or groaning, with flu-like symptoms or crying, tears of regret, just ask yourself, is this actually making me feel better? Is this actually relieving any of the symptoms I wish were gone? February 9th. You don't have to have an opinion. We have the power to hold no opinion about a thing and to not let it upset our state of mind, for things have no natural power to shape our judgments. Here's a funny exercise. Think about all of the upsetting things that you don't know about. You know, stuff that people might have said about you behind your back, mistakes you might have made that never came to your attention, things that you've dropped or lost without even realizing it. What's your reaction? You don't have one because you don't know about it. In other words, it is possible to hold no opinion about a negative thing. You just need to cultivate that power instead of wielding it accidentally, especially when having an opinion is likely to make us aggravated. Practice the ability to having absolutely no thought about something. Act as if you had no idea it ever occurred or that you've never heard of it before. Let it become irrelevant or non-existent to you. It'll be a lot less powerful this way. February 10th. Anger is bad fuel. There is no more stupefying thing than anger. Nothing more bent on its own strength. If successful, none more arrogant. If foiled, none more insane. Since it's not driven back by weariness even in defeat, when fortune removes its adversity, it turns its own teeth on itself. As the Stoics have said many times, getting angry almost never solves anything. Usually it makes things worse. We get upset, then the other person gets upset. Now everyone is upset, and the problem is no closer to being resolved. Many successful people will try to tell you that anger is a powerful fuel in their lives. The desire to prove them all wrong, or shove it in their faces, has made many a millionaire. The anger at being called fat or stupid has created fine physical specimens and brilliant minds. The anger at being rejected has motivated many to carve their own path. But it's short-sighted. Such stories ignore the pollution produced as a side effect and the wear and tear it has put on the engine. It ignores what happens when that initial anger runs out, and how now more and more must be generated to keep the machine going. Hate is too great of a burden to bear, Martin Luther King warned his fellow citizen right leaders in 1969, even though they had every reason to respond to hate with hate. The same is true for anger. In fact, it's true for most extreme emotions. They are toxic fuel. There's plenty of it out there in the world, no question, but never worth the costs that come along with it. February 11th, Hero or Nero Our soul is sometimes a king and sometimes a tyrant. A king, by attending to what is honourable, protects the good health of the body in its care and gives it no base or sorrow to command. 
but an uncontrolled, desire-fueled, overindulged soul is turned from a king into the most feared and detested thing of all, a tyrant. There is that saying that absolute power corrupts absolutely. At first glance, that's true. Seneca's pupil Nero and his litany of crimes and murders is a perfect example. Another emperor, Domitian, banished all philosophers from Rome. Many of Rome's emperors were tyrants. Yet, not many years later, Epictetus would become a close friend of another emperor, Hadrian, who would help Marcus Aurelius to the throne, and one of the truest examples of a wise philosopher king. So it's not so clear that power always corrupts. In fact, it looks like it comes down in many ways to the inner strength and self-awareness of the individual. What they value, what desires they keep in check, whether their understanding of fairness and justice can be counteracted by the temptations of unlimited wealth and defence. The same is true for you, both personally and professionally. Tyrant or king, hero or Nero, which will you be?